Welcome to the Happy Successful Massage Therapist. I'm Eric DeGeer, business coach, massage therapist, game designer, and your host. This podcast deals with a wide range of interests framed within the five mountains, physical, mental, financial, relational, and spiritual. This month, we'll be focusing on the mental mountain, which involves our mind, education, perspective, and knowledge. Enjoy. All right. Welcome to another episode of the Happy Successful Massage Therapist. I'm here with my cousin, John Churchill, to talk about music, healing, and all different types of oral therapy that he's experienced in. John is, of course, my cousin, so I've known him all my life, and he's a fantastic music composer and artist, and you can find his work on Spotify and also on Amazon, right? Mm -hmm. Any digital streaming platform has it. Yeah, we're going to be talking today, connecting some therapeutic dots between massage and benefits that you receive from that and music. John, tell a little bit about yourself, how long you've been a music artist and composer and how that all is going right now. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me, Eric. I've been an active composer for 10 plus years professionally. I've been studying music for the majority of my life, uh, being 33. I, good grief, it's been 29 years of playing music. Had a lot of background in songwriting before college. After spending a couple of years in engineering, decided to switch gears and go to music and decided to go the composition route. Just fell in love with classical and instrumental music, even though my background was more in songwriting. But after college, moved to Austin, Texas, and started building up a clientele of students. So I'm also an educator. Aside from writing music, I teach it as well. And now I do a couple of animation scores a year, teach, and then I do my own personal writing and recording of my own music. That's definitely why I brought you on. A lot of experience to do with the musical arts. And not a lot of people think about the music that they put into their massage session. For me, I consider it part of the whole experience. When somebody comes in, all the different senses, smell, touch, well, probably not taste, but... I've had massages that end with a nice cup of tea. Nice tea to wake you up, maybe some green tea or black tea. The music component of it is always fascinating to me. As a therapist, it sets the mood for how I'm going to perform the massage. Like mm -hmm. I've noticed if it's more traditional spa music with this very slow kind of... I don't know if it would be synth or whatever, but it's long drawn out chords and just very soft, new agey music. And then you've got classical, of course. I've been really into cello lately, and I find that just that the soulful voice of the cello speaks to something as I'm working. I use a lot of intuition in my movement, so I find myself moving along with music, which is really interesting. It's very fascinating because I didn't even think about it from the perspective of the massage therapist. It's like setting the mood for the client, but that makes total sense that that would play a role. It also is interesting that you mentioned that you've shifted to cello. There's some similarities between that as an instrument and some of the drone sounds that accompany some pretty stereotypical new age, just because you're dealing with an instrument that, I mean, sometimes it's more than a single note. It being a bowed instrument has that droned note. So there is some similarity there. Yeah, I think it definitely speaks to the personality of the therapist, what music they have on. It's really interesting. One of my therapists who works for me, he usually plays, if he has the choice, rock and roll. So he'll play like classic rock. Some clients are even okay because they connect with him on it. 
so it's really interesting that I think I read this study that people are more relaxed by a song that they recognize as well as, you know, the relaxing components of the music. Yeah, that's pretty fascinating. There's also a quality of having some weekly conversations with a student of mine who's a neurologist talking about the connection between music and emotion. And it would be interesting to me to think about what emotion you're actually evoking, depending on what you're listening to within your massage. It could be that because a metal song is relatable to somebody because they've heard it before, they may be able to be in a more relaxed state because it has maybe a nostalgic element or there's tones to it that they enjoy where somebody who's not really accustomed to listening to that would make them quite uncomfortable. It would be interesting to think about what emotional state that puts them in, whether that actually relaxes them. So I'm a Reiki master, and one of the things I do for my Reiki sessions that's a bit different from my massage sessions is I usually put on nature sounds. What I've always found fascinating with nature sounds is that they're random yet predictable. That's what makes them so relaxing. I mean, you have thunder rolling at random times seemingly, but it's predictable. You know how the sound is going to go, or the raindrops are random yet predictable. Well, there's also something associated with that, with just general relationship to pitch. So like when you think about nature sounds, you could think that like a bird song that you're hearing, that's actually evolutionarily speaking, a beginning point for where music comes from in terms of tone. But even a raindrop hitting, you know, another puddle of water, that sound has a pitch to it. There's a timbre and a color to that as well. So there's certain sounds that when you hear them, the way that you hear them, I imagine there's some evolutionary benefit to it because some sounds that you hear are inherently dangerous and you would recognize when you hear them that they're dangerous or something that's inherently peaceful. I think it does tap into something primal for us, just hearing those sounds. It's always funny to me hearing rain and thunder, yet it being relaxing. You wouldn't think of those sounds if you were out in those elements as being relaxing, but there's something about being safe and warm, yet hearing those and knowing that you're safe. I'm just spitballing here, but it could be that at some point in time, if it's raining and thundering out, whatever tasks that you usually do within the day, you're kind of forced to relax or to do nothing. That is interesting. I never thought about that. Maybe it's like something that puts you in a state of reflection, unless of course it's flooding your space and you got to get to work. Very true. It is interesting, though, that it's water mostly. There's raindrops, there's creeks flowing, there's ocean. I find ocean very relaxing. It's kind of like a metronome. It's very connected to breath. That's actually another thing that I use in Reiki a lot is I do breath work with the client. So I have them breathe and I do breath work as well during it to move the energy around. The ocean is very symbolic to me of that in and out breathing. And I know you and I have discussed breath before. In fact, you're the one who introduced me to the book by James Nestor, Breath, which has been hugely influential in not only my coaching that I do for massage therapists, but also for my own massage work. That book was pretty transformative for me on many fronts. I think some of the breathing exercises that he mentions in there are kind of, in a way, like a meditative hack. When you're first learning about meditation, there's the concentrating on your breathing. And part of that is to just getting into a state of nothing because it's so easy to get lost in thought. And some of those breathing methods, because you're focused on doing it right, focus on your breath. And it's probably similar in your breath work sessions with your clients that you're inherently present when you're doing that, at least for little blips of moments. And there's something super therapeutic about being in your body and being there in the moment that just is inherently relaxing. 
Yeah, I think it definitely taps into the meditative state and sends it into, I think it's the theta wave. I'll have to refresh myself on that. Pretty sure it sends your brain into a state kind of similar to when you were a child. They found that the theta waves are really present there when your brain is open and moldable for learning. That's why meditation can be really transformative for people with PTSD or who kind of want to reprogram their brain with more positive affirmations. And Reiki, to me, if Thai massage is someone doing yoga to you, Reiki to me is someone doing meditation to you. It's the way that I describe it to clients. Yeah, you mentioned the breath work and then you associated that with the ocean waves. I often do this with many of my students when playing through different passages that oftentimes musical phrases are a lot like breathing. Partially, I think that that has something to do with the fact that it's often like speaking or singing because you obviously have to control your breath and there's this inhale, exhale motion oftentimes with musical phrases that it's basically like showing a student how to do this by playing it for them and showing how this is where you're inhaling, this is where you're exhaling. And it's a pretty good a little technique for even adding a more musical element to something. But oftentimes if students are really focused, you'll notice they've actually stopped breathing. Training them to actually continue to breathe and use that breath motion as a part of what they're playing, it's pretty beneficial. There's definitely something associated with that act of inhaling and exhaling, even just performing a musical uh, passage. With massage as well, the breath is really important. Just leading off from that, the Thai massage work that I do often involves, you know, their body being twisted or being a little bit compressed or just a stretch happening. And a lot of times the client will hold their breath during the middle of it. And oftentimes I have to remind them to breathe because that's what helps it release. In fact, I can noticeably see from stretching them, let's say their leg across their body down across the table. Every time they breathe, more movement happens and more of a stretch is gained because they're relaxing the muscles. Actually, the body is tighter when we're conscious. And if we become unconscious, then our muscles are more relaxed. We have more movement and flexibility when we're not awake and conscious. So let's move back to the work that you do. I know that you do a type of healing with music with some of these students that you have. What are the therapeutic benefits of music and how do you use that with your students? That's a very difficult question to answer because I think in the years that I've been doing this, all of the different things that have been beneficial. We can start it from like a student perspective. You know, you might have somebody who's a teenager that's experiencing something traumatic in their home life and all of a sudden their piano is like their therapy. So you're processing grief or your trauma just through the act of, of making sound. You know, some of my adult students is a way of decompressing from their jobs to use just the act of learning an instrument or playing music. Another line of my work that I do is I'm a contributing artist with Austin Classical Guitar, the Music and Healing Initiative. That is directly working with people that are experiencing trauma or people that have PTSD. So some of the work is with veterans and some of the work is with people that are undergoing cancer treatment. Some of the work is with women coming out of sex trafficking and processing that trauma through music. Another avenue is uh, something called the Lullaby Project, which works with new mothers-to-be who are currently pregnant. And typically those mothers are pregnant through, could be through assault, or maybe they're incarcerated and they're pregnant. And in that particular project, it has to do with writing a lullaby for their baby that they're about to have. Whereas the other projects are working on original music for them to have a creative outlet to process some of their trauma or be a distraction from it, which in terms of the question of like benefits of music, I've just seen such a variety of what that could look like. 
something strictly just from listening to it because there's something about the act of listening that you're present and you're just taking a bath in sound. And there's just something that's therapeutic in that. For others, it's the act of creating. Being a part of the creation process of the music is also therapeutic because maybe you don't have a creative outlet and you're able to process some of your grief or your trauma, pain, what have you, through the act of playing music. Or in some cases, it's facing your mortality and processing that with music. What I've learned across my career is that it has multifaceted therapeutic benefits. If I think of it selfishly, just within my own life, I feel fortunate in that I have my creative outlet as my way of processing things within my life. For myself, oddly enough, when it comes to being happy, I don't process my joy with my music. It seems to be the avenue for grief, for pain, for anger, channeling it in that direction for myself. I don't even know if that even answers your question, but it's such a broad thing to try to nail down. Yeah, and there's definitely so many different avenues and questions that came up while you were explaining that. Like even talking about dealing with feelings of mortality, you know, using music, what does that look like? Two things instantly come to mind. One, I'll say it from the music and healing prospect, is that when you're working with somebody who's undergoing cancer treatment, especially when you don't really know what direction the treatment's going in, if anything, there's like a healthy distraction in doing something constructive and creative that feels like it gives what they're going through a purpose. And I think there's something to be said for that. Another thing that I've actually kind of learned about is, this is a little bit of a tangent, being a professional musician, you could really forget how magical music is to people that don't play and how it's not, it's something that could be just very natural for me to produce or for me to do because I've been doing it for so long. For somebody else, it isn't even computable how it's possible. And there's something about that magical element to them that I think also adds to it, where they're able to take part in something that feels next to impossible, like magic. You know, from the beginning, of, these are like six-week projects, meeting once a week. And from the beginning of just introducing ourselves to at the end, there's a five-minute recording of a song that either is a description of their life or a way of them processing their pain. Just within those six weeks, they've created something whether it's something for them to have or something for their family to have afterwards. If anything, it's a distraction in a good way. For some of them, they want the cancer treatment to be a part of the focus of the project. And for some of them, they don't want to think about it at all. Both seem to be beneficial. So just for our listeners, when you talk about the project, you're talking about a song that someone at the end of their life is creating either on piano or a guitar, and they're creating this track either to signify their life or as a message to those who will miss them while they're gone or those who will be left behind. It could be, yeah. It could also be a celebration of somebody coming to the tail end of their treatment successfully. You know, these projects aren't necessarily them performing. Typically, the recording is me. Like I'll play all the instruments and some of them have words taking memories. Typically over the course of the meetings, I have one week will focus on their past, like far past and develop a story of their life. Sometimes those turn into lyrics and sometimes they want to sing on them. Sometimes they don't. And I'll end up singing or one of the other contributing artists in the program will. Typically what I'll do is I'll get us started with, you know, direction the song might go in. And really they're kind of choosing the vibe or the overall feeling of the song based on options that I'm presenting to them. I may come up with three or four potential directions and get a sense of what direction they want to go in and go from there. It's fairly similar to film scoring working with a director for a scene, I'm going to give them more than one option because it's going to help me understand what they're actually looking for, for within that specific scene. 
So some of the songs could be strictly instrumental. I've had projects that I end up putting to video and there's slideshows of their life and pictures, but the music is original to them and their life. These tracks, they sound very personal. These aren't released in any way. That's up to the participant. Oftentimes the head organization that is kind of the umbrella over music and healing initiative, they have a SoundCloud page that I think from time to time they upload them. And they may also be included in an annual concert. Like back in May, we had a virtual concert that I participated in where I made a medley of four different songs of participants I'd worked with. I would also say within the question of processing or approaching mortality, there was another side to that that was a personal story to me because I've also utilized music in a way to process grief of mortality. Case in point, last September, a student that I had taught for nine years was diagnosed with leukemia. She was actually one of the original students that I had when I moved to Austin. She was literally one of my first. And she was actually in recovery, but ended up getting an infection post a bone marrow transplant. And she ended up passing. For me, I felt really grateful that I'd shared with her music. So music was the thing that connected the two of us. And it was my way of processing the grief. The first thing I did when I heard that she had passed was I instantly sat at my piano and played. Music is a great gift for processing a lot of different emotions, that's for sure. That's definitely where it separates from massage when processing grief. What you were saying before about the client or the participant kind of experiencing this magical element to it that sometimes we as the instructor or therapist or as the teacher, we often forget how magical it is and how people experience it especially poignantly beautiful moments like this where you can go and use that as a channel to process the emotions and grief that you're feeling. There's some interesting subject matter that I've been reading recently. I've been reading this book by Ian McGilchrist called The Master and His Emissary. And it is a book that is discussing your brain hemispheres and how the way that we are taught about the functions of your left hemisphere versus your right hemisphere are a little misguided. Actually, they're extremely misguided. Something that's fairly interesting about it is that he made a point that music is essentially the language of your right hemisphere. And if memory serves me correctly, I think aside from anger, your emotions and your understanding of emotions are processed in your right hemisphere. So it makes total sense that music, dependent on how it sounds, automatically channels certain emotions in a way that we can't really understand, which is fascinating. How much of your study or your work has involved the vibrational aspect of music and like how it affects us on a physical level? I know we talked before a little bit about sound therapy. It's a little bit limited, but there have been some tests that I've done on myself that I find interesting. Like, I wonder why certain keys of music are more attractive to me than others, or why I have a favorite key of music. For instance, my favorite key is D-flat major. There's something about that key. The frequencies of those pitches are perfect for me. And that's exactly it. I could take those chords and put them in G major, and I won't get the same response within myself. Granted, it's not entirely surprising because I'm literally changing all of the frequencies because it's an entirely different set of chords. So those chords are going to have a different frequency. Now, it's not necessarily bad, but it just has a different feeling. 
On another note, it's kind of interesting too that they've done some neurological tests where now via brain scan, they can see what pitch somebody just heard based on the way that the brain responds. So you can look at a brain scan and know what somebody just heard, which is quite wild to think about. But as far as like an actual frequency, I don't know why necessarily that the notes that make up a D flat major chord versus the notes that make up an A major chord are more appealing to me. Definitely a lot of theories and some type of research or anecdotal evidence about therapies such as sound therapy and the benefits like crystal bowl healing. I mean, you look at any religion or any sort of tradition that involves sound or music and there's some type of, you know, bell or bowl or, you know, ringing some type of instrument, if you will, that provides this vibrational tune. And I've had sound healing done and you can feel it. Big bowls or bells ringing through your body. I love the Tibetan bowls. I've heard of some of these studies and stories of people thinking that certain sounds have added healing benefits. I tend to think that it's more of the de-stressor meditative therapeutic benefits, which de-stressing is a positive thing, and there could already be physical healing properties just from removing stress. Now, I don't know if listening to Tibetan bowls is going to make a tumor disappear, but there's definitely something to that. And it's also, to me, not really surprising because if you think about it, pretty much every human civilization has some form of music involved in some form of way that they commune together or process things or have ceremonies. Sound is involved. Especially if you look at religions, you know, the different chantings or prayers or in James Nestor's book, he even talks about the perfect breath, you know, where you breathe in, have the space in between, then breathe out for a specific amount of time. And apparently, like Ave Maria, the Om breath and chant in Buddhism, and some of these others have all converged upon the same point that they found, which was the perfect breath. It's kind of like the golden ratio almost mm, for breath yeah. work. Yeah, I remember reading that in the book and found that quite interesting. I like facts like that because they don't speak to the truth of the belief system. They speak to something else as to why it's beneficial. This kind of goes to the same point about the sound, the, like the therapeutic benefits of just sound, where it's putting you in a certain state that is probably what is giving you the benefit more than the truth of what you're doing, which is interesting. For sure. All right. One more music question before we get onto the game. Who are your musical influences? I think most of my musical influences now are people that are dead. And they're also my main teachers and my bio. I say Chopin taught me about melody and Liszt taught me what was possible in terms of piano and just studying their music. It just has influenced so much of what I write because of breaking down what's possible harmonically, meaning chords, why they move together. More than anybody, Chopin is just, I, I'm enamored with his music and it influences me a lot. In my younger days, when I was more of a guitar player, I ate up Dave Matthews and Tim Reynolds. They have several CDs that they put out that were they're doing just the two of them on acoustic guitars. There's one that's live at Radio City that in college I just ate up. That and John Mayer, Where the Light Is Tour, just great guitar work that just really inspired me to play a lot of guitar. But that feels so much in the past because right now it's just I'm so enamored with instrumental and classical music. 
However, I will say that from time to time, as silly as it sounds, I revisit Coldplay. A couple of tracks from Coldplay, just from like an audio perspective, the mixing and Chris Martin's ability to write a melody, that from time to time when they're not doing their poppy stuff, they come out with stuff that's extremely creative, which I enjoy listening to. I can't say that it necessarily has influenced me, but I do enjoy it. Are there any non-musician influences that have influenced your music? I'm actually sure that there is. Oddly enough, you know, that book that I mentioned earlier, The Master and His Emissary by Ian McGilchrist, I started that a few months ago, and that's actually just transformed the way I teach, because just understanding how music responds with your brain, and, and it, it's actually explained a lot to me in terms of stages of learning something that students are going through, and it's made me a, a little bit of a better communicator in that regard. Okay, let's hop over to, to the card games. We're actually going to be pulling cards from each of the games, 420 and Happy Hour. I love having guests on for these cards because it's really interesting to see all these different reactions. Okay, John, here's your first question. Would you rather be a mermaid, unicorn, fairy, or elf? Well, what kind of elf are we talking about here? Are we talking about like a Keebler elf or are we talking about like uh, an elf from like Lord of the Rings? Probably a Keebler. <laughs> Well, I don't want to make cookies, man. Uh, <laughs> uh, and what kind of fairy? Like Fern Gully kind of fairy or like Tinkerbell? Tinkerbell, I would say. Yeah, fuck that. Uh, let's see. So leaves a mermaid or a unicorn? Like three out of four of these are like more like human-like. And then you like throw a horse in there. Well, mermaid would be like from Harry Potter. So evil. They were evil, right? <laughs> They weren't that evil. They were just, I mean, we, what is evil? Oh, well, it's <laughs> super, super deep. <laughs> you know what? If it wasn't going to be a Keebler elf and it was going to be a Lord of the Rings elf, I would choose that. But if not that version of an elf, I would go mermaid. Merman I, or full mermaid? I mean, I think that I wouldn't want to be a mermaid because when I think merman, I just think Zoolander. I would just feel like I'm a joke. I think more Aquaman, but each to his own. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Aquaman wasn't a merman, though. He was just Aquaman. He doesn't I'm just count. imagining Aquaman with the tail. You're changing the, <laughs> the parameters here. You asked me if I wanted to be a mermaid, not a merman. Breathing underwater would be pretty badass, though. And I wonder whether or not like mermaids can go between saltwater and freshwater. Hmm. I think they'd be cousins. They'd be different types oh they'd be like us you'd be the freshwater one and i would be saltwater yeah sure no, no reason why but i just chose it yeah well i mean that'd be unfortunate because i couldn't go in most of the places that mermaids would be able to hide yeah that's actually the reason why i said that but yeah if it was modern times mermaid would definitely be the best choice because all the others you know you'd have to live on land somewhere and especially unicorn you'd be hunted or put in a zoo or something like fairies and elves You'd have to find somewhere to hide. Mermaid would have the largest place to hide. I think that the unicorn and the fairy are the worst options because one, you're an animal, and the other, you could probably be eaten by an animal. Like a bird. <laughs> like a bird would just peck you, like just pull you out of the sky. Yeah. True. Yeah. I could see the fairies going living on the moon or something, though, if they wanted to. Okay. You're throwing just, this is, this is like the Aquaman scenario. We never, well, why, how, why would a fairy be able to go to the moon? Do they not breathe? <laughs> I don't know. It's a fairy. Do they do anything besides eat stardust? I don't know. Next question. Okay. We beat that unicorn to death. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Here's one along the same line. 
but a little bit different. If you were a supervillain, what animal would you choose for your sidekick? And it has to be like an actual animal that exists, like in their current state, current size. Sure. And the animal mines all of my like direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's your sidekick. You could even write it on it, I guess. Oh, man. So in today's world, I feel like with where technology is, the benefit of having a hawk or an eagle isn't as beneficial because you could just have a drone. It'd be really cool to have a chimpanzee because they could just rip anything apart. I think also having a wolf because wolves are just badass. It depends on the function too, because if you're having a sidekick, do you want them to just be brute force or do you want them to be sneaky? I love all the thought you're putting into this. And like, would a, let's say a colony of killer hornets, would that be considered one animal since they're kind of a hive mind? And I'm wondering how like asshole small I need to go with this. Like be like a jerk and be like, I want a, a, like a single cell organism because you can't see it, but it can. I want COVID, COVID for my sidekick. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Oh, that's funny. That's really funny. I think it might be nice to have something that's a little inconspicuous that can gather information and people wouldn't really think anything of it, but also something that somebody doesn't see initially as a pest. So like you could hear a mosquito or a fly, somebody's going to want to kill it. I got one. I think like a small bird, like a hummingbird. People like to look at hummingbirds. Their range is not very far. I'm going to choose a Kodiak bear. I'm going to go brute force route. Yeah. Hey, intimidation. I think that's part of the supervillain. Tell everyone something that nobody in the room knows about you. So just me. Something that... (laughs) There's a lot of things that you don't know about me. Wow, there's many things to choose from. Hmm. What would be a fact that you don't know about me? See, I like this one because since we're cousins, we have a moderate amount of knowledge about each other, but there's enough that it would be different than asking a stranger this question. Yeah, I'm thinking of some outlandish things that I've done, and I'm pretty sure that these are stories that you've heard, so that might not be worth it. Wow, this is a tough one. But you said there were a lot. Yeah, there's a lot, but there's a lot of things I don't want to say. You know what I mean? Like, there are things about me that I don't want to say for, like, all of your listeners, or for maybe for you to hear. My genetics have predisposed me to have small, little, benign tumors on my body. They're like little growths. Sounds really gross, but they're actually not even really noticeable. Yeah, I'm genetically predisposed to those. Surface level, or are you talking about like inside? First time I found out about it is I had a bump on my right forearm. Felt like a little ball. And then I noticed another one on my rib. I was like, I probably need to get this checked out. And then I went to dermatologist was the person that I spoke with that they say that they see this all the time and that I'm lucky because some people with this genetic condition have like hundreds all over their body. It's not like dangerous, but it's just these little deposits of fat. You now know that about me. I'm a monster. (laughs) (laughs) It's the start of your supervillain career. Yeah. I just need to get my bear. Hmm, something you don't know about me. I am learning tennis. Are you learning the rules of tennis or how to play tennis? How to play tennis. I mean, I guess I've learned it. I'm just getting better now. I was just in a tournament. I also fully recognize that my question was stupid. (laughs) Of course that you meant that you're to play tennis. (laughs) Tennis is pretty fun, though. I'm really enjoying it. 
apparently it's one of the few sports you can continue to play when you're older. So it's kind of a long-term investment. It's got to suck to be one of those old people that can't play tennis when they were told that they could when they were older. Well, they can always play pickleball. Okay, last question. What do you believe stands between you and complete happiness? I feel fortunate enough that the answer to that I would think would be nothing. I think that I'm living my passion and there's just an innate form of contentment that comes with that. And I have beautiful friendships. I have a wonderful family, a lot of goodness. The only thing that like seems to throw me off is the word complete, because I think that happiness, it's not a state, it's a byproduct of a pursuit. And I think that there are so many things that are in my life that have been a part of my life, kind of on purpose from past experiences to make my life have a greater sense of purpose. And I think that purpose in several directions in my life actually adds that feeling of happiness, whether that's musical pursuit, friendships, personal education, reading, exercise goals, just recognizing certain habits that lead to more contentment. I think complete happiness is the complete is what is throwing me off. I would say more of a consistent state of contentment produces that those moments of joy and happiness. I don't think you'd want to be in a constant state of happiness. No. I really enjoy struggle. I think that I consistently put myself in scenarios that are hard, whether that's in my exercise or in some of the breath work that I do. And I think I've mentioned to you before that for over a year now, I've been doing the Wim Hof breathing method pretty much every day. And there's something challenging even within that to reveal what your body is capable of going through. I think that adds to that feeling of contentment, but the struggle is required for that, in my opinion. I agree. It's definitely hard. And that's one of the concepts that we roll around with in this podcast, just the idea of happiness and success even. Because of course, I run the Happy Successful Massage Therapist Facebook group, and then we have the Happy Successful Massage Therapist podcast. And just thinking about this idea of difference between happiness and joy how you can find joy every day or how you find happiness in life. And I've always heard just from different sources and stuff that I read, that happiness is a choice. You know, it's like a coat. Choose to take off the coat rack and put on every day. It's not something you find or seek or have to hunt for. I think that the choice of happiness, that when you talk about it being a coat, it just made me think of depression because when you're in a depression or having a depressive episode, that's not a choice you can make. And it's something that you burn is like having a sickness where this is going to pass. To be happy in that moment is not a choice. But that's where like the routine, the things of figuring out what is that injecting struggle in and allowing your brain to work out in that way and become more resilient. Me has been very, very effective. Maybe the happiness that I'm talking about is more acceptance, that feeling of peace. You can be in a depressive state or a demotivated state or something and accept that that's what you're going through right now, like you said, and it's something that has to pass. I kind of wonder if we're talking about the same thing where it, when you come to that place of acceptance of like, this is the part of journey that I'm on and I'm okay with that, like that's what I see as the happiness. That's where things start to move forward. Yeah, that's definitely true. And what's also interesting is that those tools for a depressed person take years to develop. It's also an understanding that that feeling of contentment with your life, similar to like the feeling of happiness in general or joy, 
they're feelings. And so feelings come and go. And so it's a message that you have to retell yourself because you're going to encounter new struggles. You're going to encounter new things. It's a part of the practice. So like anything else you want to get better at, the state of gratefulness, the state of feeling content, those things are, to me, definitely practiced. I'll meet people that are at a different leg in their journey, you know, that are dealing with depression. It's one of those things where it's like, I remember this. I remember that time. If I were to calculate it like my life, not going to say it's going to look exactly like my life, but being somebody who worked out all those routines and worked hard and, and developed out of luck in a way the right routines for stability, seeing that the road to progress is in years, which is, it adds to the value of it. Well, there's kind of a few things that come to mind while you were talking. One was that, yeah, when we're going to meet people who are further back on the path than us. And I feel like my job as coach, my job as instructor, at least with as far as massages related is to guide those people from that. You know, we can, through our own story, go back and say, hey, I really relate with this and this is what I used. And you don't have to struggle as long as I did or as hard as I did if you're willing to accept kind of my guidance in this or at least like some tips if they're willing to to be open to that. And then what you said before about us dealing with the same issues, I've heard a really powerful thing from one of my clients and she said that we don't often deal with new struggles or new problems. We just deal with the old problems at a deeper level. And I thought that was really poignant. Yeah, because in essence, you know, even the things that happen now are really, if they trigger anything in your mind, they're triggering something that is old. I think that's often why, you know, in in therapy sessions with psychologists, there's often, you know, the, are you familiar with IFS? internal family systems? No. It doesn't actually have to do with your family. It has to do with this concept that you are actually an accumulation of multiple selves. Mm, Yes. So part of the therapy is, it's almost like, at least the way that I've experienced it, is like guided meditation where you're interacting Mm -hmm. with your different selves. Like oftentimes it starts with like your inner child, which isn't really all that surprising in that for a lot of people, the beginnings of trauma would start at an early age. And oftentimes the inner child, the age that that inner child is when you're in that meditative state could be directly correlated with when that trauma began. Hmm. That's really fascinating. All right, John, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for coming on and having this lovely chat. Absolutely. Yeah. How can our listeners get a hold of you or check out your music if they want to? So you can find me on any platform under my name, John, with my middle initial M as in Michael Churchill. So John M. Churchill. I've got music on Spotify, YouTube, Amazon, Google Play, all the works. And if you're interested in seeing any of the other like film stuff I've worked on, I also have a website, johnmchurchill.com. I also have an Instagram handle at John M. Churchill. I was actually listening to a lot of your music while writing up some of those questions. I really liked the Dance with the Devil. That's one of my favorite pieces. Oh, nice, yeah. That's a fun one because it's not so challenging that some of my advanced students can't play it. So it's actually one of the pieces I get to teach to my students, which is really rewarding to teach them my own. And also be in the coming few weeks, I'll be releasing an electronic music EP that will also be available. You actually heard a couple of the tracks when you stopped by my house last year. I've written more and remastered those. 
probably by the time this comes out, it's going to be released. Yeah, they'll they'll find it on the same platforms. It, the okay. title is going to be Parallels. Actually commissioned our cousin Kenny Burton to design the album cover. Nice. There will be prints that people can order of that if they enjoy looking. And everybody should check out this stuff. His Space Velvet art. Thanks, John, for being on. And everybody else, we'll see you later. All right. Bye-bye. You have been listening to the Happy Successful Massage Therapist podcast with Eric DeGear. If you would like to join our free group, you can find us on Facebook at the Happy Successful Massage Therapist. If you would like to reach out for one-on-one coaching or to join our Massage Success Club, you can find us at thegear.biz or massagesuccess.club, where you can fill out an application. As always, see you on the flip side.